0: Well, we are today continuing our series, we're working through, called Breaking Through. And this is following the the children of Israel as they have broken through into the promised land. And today we're going to talk about this idea of breaking free from the past, or, or breaking through into the future, if you will. Sort of synonymous for those being the same thought. And often when we have these breakthrough moments, as we break through into our future, or if we have the opportunity to break through from a past thing that is holding on to us, these can be times where we're filled with excitement. They can be filled with uh, anticipation of, of what is yet to come, what could finally be realized in our lives, because we're breaking free from that, that maybe an anchor that you would describe that past part of. But also, it can come with a sense of fear. A sense of fear, because now, now there's options. Now there's opportunity. Now we're breaking into somewhat of an unknown of what's ahead of us. And as I was thinking about this passage and and how that perhaps is related to my personal life, I I started thinking, when was was the first memory I have of breaking free from something? And and my mind went all the way back to when I was about four years old. Now, Now, bear with me. I was four years old, and I was breaking free into a future of my choosing because I was what you would refer to as a runner at four years old. Any other runner, I don't mean marathon runner, I was only four, I mean like running from mom and dad, every chance that I had. Anybody have kids like that, or maybe you were a child like that, and you can relate to to the pain I caused my parents with that? See, it got to the point where I was such a runner that I was one of those kids that got to wear a harness with a leash attached to it, (laughs) so that I couldn't run. But, you guys, are you sharing my pain or laughing at me? (laughs) Where are we going But I was not just fast, I was also rather intelligent. Because I learned that if mom was busy looking at a can of tomato paste on the shelf of the store, that if I stepped back a little bit and allowed a little bit of slack in the leash, I could fiddle with the buckle, unbeknownst to anybody around me. And so with one eye on mom and one eye on the buckle, I would release those buckles. And then I would plan my escape. And in that one swift moment, I would shed that harness and I would race down the aisle to freedom with mom hollering after me (laughs) as I ran down the aisle. But now, when we find these moments of freedom, we need to be careful because when we get what we ask for, sometimes we're not all that happy we've received it because shortly thereafter, running and bolting and finding myself on my own, little four-year-old Mark in the mall is terrified of where he is on his own and starts to cry. And then the mall clerk needs to come over and find you and page your parents over the intercom, and then they come pick you up, and then you have the walk of shame As you're crying and dad is furious and you're not sure how this is going to end. Often with a red bottom. But I was still a runner. These breaking free moments, they happen in other seasons of life as well. Uh, Perhaps young adults, if you're the parent of a young adult or when you went through young adult age yourself, there's this moment where you finish high school and now there is freedom, options, school, work, travel, relationships, these opportunities come up. We have freedom to break free from that and move forward into the future. Uh, Perhaps when we change jobs, if you're going from one company to the next or or one career or one position to the next, there's this, this fresh start that exists for you. There's new opportunities, a fresh start in a new field. You see, in moments like this and so many others that we encounter, what it boils down to is we have this moment of choosing a direction and an identity. And here's what I mean by that. We choose a direction because we're choosing a path. We're choosing a path that we are going to walk, but we have to ask ourselves the question, is the path I'm walking the one I want to walk because it's going to head to a destination, and is that the destination where I want to end up? It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Remember those from when we were younger? You'd turn to page 86 if you want to go this way down the path, or page 92 to go this way down the path. You choose the level of risk. You choose the turns that you're going to make on your own adventure but you need to be cautious of the choices you make because it is going to lead to a destination and is that where you want to end it's a choice of direction but it's also a choice of identity because it forces us to ask the question what kind of man or woman what kind of, of parent or spouse what type of person what what type of follower of Jesus Christ do I want to be on the journey and when I arrive So in these moments of breaking free, we have these choices of direction and identity. And so as we pick up the story of the Israelites, in Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 2, they find themselves on this journey into the promised land, and we find them at a moment of decision. They're at a moment of decision of opportunity to break free from the past and to continue into the future. Here's what I mean by that. You see, so far in the book of Joshua, we've seen and been reminded about how God had proven his commitment to Israel time and time again for the entire generation previous. He had freed them from slavery in Egypt. He had parted the Red Sea when they came up against that. When they had no food and water, he provided water even from a rock. He provided bread from heaven to feed them. When they encountered enemies, he defended them in battle. And now he has brought the children of that generation, into the promised land, a a promise made centuries earlier. And he had promised that he would be near them. He had promised that he would be their source of courage and their source of strength. And and he proved himself again by, by separating, drying up the waters of the Jordan River so that they could cross over into the promised land. And when they got there, he had gone before them to put fear in the hearts of their enemies so that none could stand before them. God had proven himself. He had proven himself faithful and committed to these people. But he stops them as they enter into the land because he needs to know something. Before they go any further, he needs to know where their hearts are at. He needs to know what's inside of them. Because you see, this region that was promised to them, this region he was bringing them into, that he had committed to them, was only to be inhabited by people who were committed to God. The original plan was for the people of Egypt that were free from slavery to go inhabit that land. But they lost that opportunity when they rebelled. And when they lost faith, they were made to wander in the desert for a generation until the next one was ready. And now here that generation is, walking into the promised land, the offspring of the rebellious, wandering wilderness dwellers. But there's a saying that says, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. You heard that one before? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And so God needs to pause this adventure for a minute and see just how far has that apple fallen from the tree. Will this next generation continue the habits? Will they continue the the views, the tendencies, the, the faith? Will those things have been passed on to their kids or will they have chosen something different? See, this is a principle I come up with quite often when I do marriage preparation counseling where a young couple comes into my office and we start talking about the future of of what it looks like to be married and what the meaning of those things are. And, And one of the first things that we want to tackle is the reality that there before me is a bride and a groom who have each been handed a script from their parents. What I mean by a script is mom and dad have defined certain things for them have modeled and demonstrated certain things for them in their lifetime, such as what marriage means, what it looks like, what it means to be a husband or a wife, a father and a mother. That's been demonstrated for them. And it's like a script, like there are an actor or an actress in a movie. They've handed this script to live out in their own lives. And those scripts are very different because they come from different families. And somehow they need to bring those two scripts and bring them together into one. And one of the first things that I do in marriage preparation counseling is, first of all, help them understand they've all received this script and that they're different, but more importantly, that they have editing rights to that script. They don't just have to continue the legacies of the generation previous. There may be parts that they want to, but they're not required to bring everything forward generation after generation after generation. That's where we get these generational sins from at times. But not only do they have editing rights, they have rewrite options if they need to do so as well. If that script is so flawed, they have the right to draw a line in the sand and say, it stops with me. I'm going to rewrite a new script for my generation and the one that comes after me. It's an option that they have. And so now this next generation of Israelites has been handed a script by their parents. And it's got a mixed bag of options in it. There's some good stuff in that bag. There's, There's these ancestral promises that have been with them for generations. There are seasons of blessings. There's moments when their parents and their grandparents and beyond had incredible amounts of influence within the nation and the nations around them. There's good stuff in there. But there's also some bad stuff. You see, there's a season of slavery. There's this waywardness that tends to come up time and time again. These seasons of rebelling, of grumbling. There's even times of idolatry where they completely abandon God. So there's some good, there's some bad, but there's also some godly. There's these seasons of incredible faithfulness and unity when they walked closely with the Lord their God. There's times where they trusted, obeyed, and followed. So there's good, there's bad, and there's godly. What will they choose to define their future? As they go forward. It's a question for the Israelites as they come into the promised land. But it's also, I think, a question for us to personally and collectively reflect upon. You know, we've all been had in a mixed bag of examples and experiences as well. And that is true for our own personal lives. The lives of our families. Our professional lives. But also for the life here in this church. And perhaps church experiences you've had in the past elsewhere as well. There's this mixed bag of experiences and opportunities that we bring with us. And so the question exists for us personally and collectively here today. What do we want our future to be defined by? By good, bad, or godly? Now this is why God initially stops them. He stops the advancement of Israel into the New Promised Land. Maybe it's why at times in the past God has stopped the advancement in a person's life. Maybe this is part of a reason why God has stopped the advancement of churches in the past. Because before God can go any further with certain visions and plans he has, before we go along with that, he needs to know are the people on board? If he's going to use them, to bless them, to fight for them, he needs to know will they stand with him? Will they fight with him? Will they remain faithful to him? Will they be his people and will he be their God? The generation earlier was not able to proclaim that. But here is this opportunity for a current breaking through from the past for this current generation. So understanding that this is the context, this is the background that goes into Joshua chapter five, starting in verse two and going forward. Understanding that's the background. That's what's going on in this case. We see in verse two that God gives Joshua a command. And the first thing he tells them to do is to make knives of flint and to circumcise the nation. That is quite the initiation as you get into the promised land. <laughs> you know, this isn't something we talk about very often, and we're not going to talk about it too much today, because we can get a little squeamish about this. Let's just be honest, right? It's not a pleasant conversation. But it, it is pivotal to what happens in this passage. So we'll, we'll just take a brief second, if we may, and talk about circumcision a little bit, okay? <laughs> so it is kind of a big deal, right? Especially for these people, these are adults who have come into the land, and this is the command they're given. Now, I'm always shocked when you read, especially through, like, Genesis and Exodus and here into Joshua, when, when there's these accounts where God comes to, like, Abraham in Genesis 17 and says, Abraham, I promise to bless you, to make you a mighty nation, to be with you, and you'll be as numerous as the sands of the, of the shore and the stars of the sky but I want you to go home and, and, and circumcise all the men in your village and in your tribe, all who belong to you. And the next line is, and it was so. I have a feeling the meeting didn't go that easily when, when Abraham got back. I'm just guessing. I'm reading into the line a little bit. But I don't think it went over quite that easily. And I, I don't think the meeting that Joshua had with the tribe, with the nations, went that easily as well. I, I can just kind of picture Joshua assembling the nation behind him. Tens of thousands of men come before him. He goes, men, men of Israel, God has spoken and he's given this land to us. That's the good news. (laughs) But there's some bad news. (laughs) And you can imagine the conversation goes on from there. I I think it wasn't quite as easy as we see in scripture, but but nonetheless, this is the promise and this was the requirement that God had set forth all the way back into Genesis chapter 17. It was established with Abraham and all who would come after him. And and, and here's the point of it. If you ever wonder, what is the point of this? You see, it was meant to be evidence that a person and everything in their home would be included in the promises of God and that they were committing themselves to those promises and they would abide by the promises. This was to be an outward physical sign that they were committing to that. And so under this covenant, this special sign that there was a relationship between that person and God, and all people that were affiliated with that man who was the head of his, of his lands and of his family. Now today when we make these agreements, we, we don't do this as, in the same fashion. We might just get a, a nice thick piece of paper and write a contract, buy a fancy pen, and sign our names to it. But that's what we do now. But back then it had this deeper meaning to it. And here's, here's the meaning. This is sort of the, the, uh, an understanding of the meaning of, of circumcision for this time. It's this. It was a person saying, if I am not faithful, if I am not obedient to the Lord, may the sword of the Lord cut me and my offspring off from this promise. That's what it it means. That's what a person was agreeing to. And they were making this very serious, very solemn statement and commitment to that exact phrase, that they were going to abide with God. Now, this is a practice that I've been maintained for hundreds of years while they... Israelites were slaves even right through the time when they were slaves in Egypt. But during this 40-year period of wandering in the desert, they hadn't done this. It hadn't been done. And so this nation comes into the land without this being done to them. Which is an interesting point. Because you see, to follow the way it was supposed to happen is when when a son was eight days old, a parent would make this choice for them. But now here's this generation where this choice was not made for them. They were going to make this choice for themselves. This wasn't something that mom and dad did to them. It was something that they had to choose to align themselves with and make that personal affirmation themselves, that personal decision to say, yes, I will follow the Lord. And this was the sign of doing that. And when the opportunity is presented, the whole nation takes ownership of their faith. The whole nation decides to move forward and take ownership of their faith. And once this happened, God says something incredibly profound to them through Joshua. After this is done, he says this to them in verse nine. He says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What does that mean? You see, we gotta go back 40 years to when God freed his people from Egypt. From that moment, Up until this moment, they hadn't known success yet. They'd wandered the desert. Yes, he had been with them. He had provided for them. But there was always this lingering thought, this nagging sense hanging over them that other nations were watching. And other nations still had the opportunity to accuse God of not being able to get the job done. There was still the chance that other nations would say, your God's not powerful enough. Your God's not loving enough to bring you into this promised land. But now, with the people camped in the promised land, with the relationship and with the promise renewed, the nations could no longer ridicule God. The nations could no longer ridicule the people because he had proven himself to be powerful. He had proven himself to be loving enough. And he had proven himself that he is true to his promises. He is true to his word. And when his people align themselves with him, they can stand with him and the reproach of the world melts away. We can find that in our own lives as well. There may be this sense of reproach of the society around us at times when they find out that you're a follower of Christ. There might be this sense of of shame or of ridicule that kind of creeps in. That's that reproach that can melt away. See, it can melt away even even now. We're we're in a way, we're kind of like this children of Israel wandering through the desert because we live in this now but not yet time of the kingdom where yes, you know that God has come, Jesus has come to to reveal the kingdom, but that is now, but there's this not yet part because glory in heaven is still yet to come. And so we live in this wandering now but not yet time. But even in the midst of that, we have the promises of the scriptures that, that we are friends with Christ, that we are sons and daughters of him, that that we do not need to find our value in what the world looks at from this post-Christian relativistic world that there is truth in scripture that it is better to do life with Jesus than to do life without him. We can find comfort in that in this season, but there is yet another season coming when that reproach will be completely rolled away because when Christ is revealed, the time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? But a caution with this. A caution with this is to look to those outside the world and go, the day is coming when you're going to get yours. Let's resist that. Because we want people to come to understand Christ first. We want people to enter into the now but not yet kingdom before he returns. It's not about retribution, it's about redemption. That's what we can celebrate, and I invite you to consider who else in your life you can invite to come in to the kingdom now so that they can celebrate in glory with him as well as that reproach is rolled away. So being in right relationship with God allows us to worship him. It allowed this nation of Israel to worship him as well, and and so they do that through celebration. And part of the celebration they use is that Celebrating their deliverance through a feast that you may have heard of, a feast called Passover. Because after this has taken place in the nation, they've stopped, and and God's ordered them to have this this service, this uh, action of circumcision done, and they complete that, they reaffirm themselves, and then they celebrate the Passover. Which, again, they had not done for 40 years You see, this festival finds its roots in the final plague that was suffered upon Egypt while they were still slaves, where God decreed that the firstborn of all people in that land and and the firstborn of all animals in that land was to be killed as an act of judgment against the people for worshipping false gods and not trusting in Him. But those who were devout to the Lord were commanded to at twilight to to slaughter a lamb and then to to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and then to roast it, and then to all gather inside the home, and to share in that meal together. And then that evening, when the angel of the Lord went throughout Egypt, it would pass over the houses of those who were devout to the Lord, that had that blood on the doorposts. And that very evening, as that took place in the land, and those who were devout to the Lord had the angel of death pass over them, and those who weren't had the angel of death go through them. On that very night, Pharaoh released the people, and their freedom was known on that evening. And God said, you shall remember this day and remember it annually as a feast of the deliverance from judgment that you've experienced. You remember it as a moment of freedom that should be passed on from generation to generation. But see, when the people went into the land, they rebelled and that, re, that, that deliverance that they had experienced all of a sudden lost meaning because they were sentenced to wander for a generation. And so they stopped celebrating. They stopped celebrating their deliverance because they felt like they had lost their deliverance in the wilderness. But now, for this new generation, a renewed commitment, a renewed promise with the Lord a renewed celebration of his goodness pointing towards a new beginning for the entire nation was theirs to realize. And in a deeply significant way that signals the completion of this old part of their life In, in, in a signal that senses that this time of wandering, this time of no longer being delivered, but now you're delivered into the future is signified by the phrase where God says, and the manna stopped. Think about that. They ate the Passover meal. The manna stopped. And it says, and they ate the food of the land from that day forward. This is a breaking point with the past. For the last generation, they've wandered the desert, trusting in God daily for that manna to be provided to them for nourishment. But it's no longer needed. Because the promise has been fulfilled. They've entered the land flowing with milk and honey. And it is rich and good. And they can eat of the produce of the land. That they are now living the promise. It was no longer a now but not yet. For them it was a now and forevermore That they were experiencing. And the means by which God had provided food for his people had stopped. It wasn't needed anymore. And, And... the this might be lost a little bit, but it makes me think back to a time when I was traveling the highways all the time. I spent so much time on the road working. And at first, you, you really enjoy the novel part of going to restaurants for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but it gets tired after a while. It reaches the point where you long for, for not a steak in a restaurant. You don't, you don't long for, for that nice bowl of, you know, um, French onion soup that you can only kind of make at a restaurant properly. You can't quite do it at home the same way you reach a point where all you're craving is grilled cheese and tomato soup. A home-cooked meal, right? Just a home-cooked meal is all you're looking for. And Israel was now home. And they could enjoy that home-cooked meal for the first time in their nation. You know, the Israelites find themselves in a moment of decision. They find themselves at this moment of opportunity to break free from the past and to break through into the future. They had seen the good, they had seen the bad, but they chose for themselves the godly. They had, in a way, they had hitched their wagons to God's will and to his promises for them. And that was the future that they were going to be defined by going forward. So there's the good, the bad, and the godly. You know, all of us here have a past. Personally and collectively, we all have a past. But we can choose how we're going to define our future. If you consider your own journey... It's highly likely that you can find examples from your own story that you can fit into each of these three categories. You can find histories, and you can think of good times. You can think of good people, uh, of, of victories that you experienced, of, of memories that you want to carry with you for a lifetime because they make you feel warm and happy inside. But I'm going to guess, I think it's a safe guess, that you can also look at your own story and find low points. You can find some of these bad times that you wish you could forget but they're such a pivotal part of of your story and they're such a part of you that you carry them with you. And and they can at times bring shame, they can bring guilt. They can also at times bring fear because you never want to go back to that again. And quite often, they leave scars. All of us have wounds and scars from the past. But there's also these godly moments. And I really genuinely pray that you've experienced these, these godly mountaintop experiences with the Lord. When, when I mean by a mountaintop experience, are these times when you feel like you could not be any closer. Maybe during a worship song or a service or, or a certain event in your life or, or these momentous occasions when you just feel like God is so near. These mountaintop times, these godly moments. Maybe you've had godly mentors who have walked with you. You've had prayers that you've prayed over and over again were finally answered. These godly moments. As I describe these things, I hope that thoughts come to your mind as, as the narrative of your life is, is understood in terms of the good, the bad, and the godly. Because that is in part a product of who you are today. Or you are a product and part of, of those things. And it has a lot to do with what you've chosen to carry forward. This is something that Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 3. Is a passage probably familiar to a lot of us, and you may not have looked at it from this angle before, but we can see that he reflects upon these things in his own life as he summarizes the the good, the bad, and the godly in his own life. See, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he says, there's others out there who have a lot of things to brag about. That would be good things that exist in their lives. He goes, but as much as they have things to brag about, I got more. I got more than anybody else. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the nation of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I am a true Hebrew. As a Pharisee, I strictly obeyed the law. Now, considering the the Jewish audience that he's speaking to here, these are things he's pointing out that would relate to their measure of success in the world. And the picture he's painted may not resonate with us too much, but for the Jewish audience he's talking to, he's basically painted a picture of a life that doesn't get much better. It would be the similar thing for us saying something along the lines of, I come from a devout Christian home. And we lived in a wealthy neighborhood. We had so much stuff in the garage, we couldn't fit our two BMWs in there. (laughs) I come from an honorable family. People knew us, they respected us, they wanted to know what we thought about things. Personally, professionally, success, status, influence, we were highly esteemed in all things. But then Paul continues. He continues, he goes, but it wasn't all good, as he reflects back. And he points out some of the bad things too. He goes, but I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. I was so zealous that I hurt people. I even killed people. There's this guy named Stephen getting stoned one day, and I just sat there and smiled as he looks back on his history. Now, looking back upon my life, I could write, a story that has similar, similar examples. It's a mixture of good and bad. Now, I don't come from a wealthy family, but, but I do come from a family with a strong Christian heritage. I come from a, a loving, stable family with a good, hard work ethic. I've known success in many areas of life, personally, professionally, relationally. I've known success in those areas. There's a lot of good things in my bag of my narrative, but it's not all good because there are parts of my story where people have hurt me deeply. There are wounds and scars that I carry forward with me to this day. But I also know that I've injured people too. I know I have. There, there's one guy that came to mind this past week, a, a guy named Pete, that I, I just absolutely betrayed about 15 years ago. and I lost track of him, but if I knew Pete today or if I ever bump into Pete, I owe him an explanation and apology because I wounded him. There's stuff in my story as well. How about you? What's your story? What parts have you chosen to carry forward with you? Now, you may have a story that has more more good than bad or more bad than good because all of our stories are unique. But if we can shift gears a little bit, also let's think about the story of this church. Next week, we're going to celebrate so much good. There are so many good things that have happened, and we are going to intentionally celebrate that. Next week. But there's also times that we know that weren't so good. There's times that were hard, even perhaps painful for some people who are here. So what do we do with all of these? What do we do with these mixtures of the good and the bad? How do we sort through them? Well, Paul continues. I think he points us in a direction as he continues in this passage. Because he's listed some of the good. He's listed some of the bad. But now he moves to the godly. And he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may claim Christ. He's willing to lose all of it because he considers everything to be garbage compared to the value of Jesus Christ. Not just the bad. He's not willing to just lose the bad stuff. We all sign up for that but he's even willing to lose the things that he labels good in his life because compared to the greatness of Jesus, it's garbage. Compared to that greatness of Jesus Christ in his life. Now, that doesn't mean he's suggesting he's not impacted and shaped by the past good and bad. He's not denying that part. It doesn't mean that that he's not going to choose to carry forward some of the good that happened. We want to carry forward some of the good that's happened. It doesn't mean he hasn't learned lessons from the past. He has learned lessons that he will carry forward with him. There's aspects of my family, traditions and values that I want to have continued in my generation and the generation beyond. There's also lessons I've learned that I do not want to go back and repeat. You may have heard the saying that people who forget the past are destined to repeat it. We don't want to do that. We want to learn from it and grow from it going forward. But we need to be mindful that at times when we look back upon the good times from the past, we may desire to have the future defined by past good. This idea of bring back the glory days. And I understand that a little bit. I'm not as old as some people who are here, but I even find myself feeling that and thinking that at times. I remember back, it was so much easier when the kids were younger you know, I, I, when I was 18, I separated my shoulder, and it's been okay for a while, but this last couple weeks, it's it starting to ache a lot, and I know I need to go see a doctor about it. And so I think back to, it was so much easier when I didn't hurt. College, college was fun. Let's go back to college. But here's the problem with wanting to bring the past glory days to the future. There's two challenges here. Number one, we can't. Because we live in a different time, a different context, there's different people and experiences and pressures and realities, and those things just don't fit. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't work. But the bigger problem is this, is that quite often we have this romanticized remembrance of the past. Because when the kids were young, it wasn't all good. There was diapers to deal with, right? The problems weren't as big, but there were diapers, I don't want to deal with that. They, they got sick a lot more. He didn't sleep as much. But we have this romanticized idea of the past. We see it in the children of Israel. Remember, they get to the wilderness, they're wandering around, and it gets tough. And what do they say? Egypt, Egypt was good. Let's go back to Egypt. That was good back there. Really? Remember the slavery? The, the bricks, the whips? Remember that part? This is a romanticized remembrance of the past. Let's bring back the glory days. But it doesn't work, and quite often it's not as we recall. But then also we can look back and think, well, maybe from the past we can't let go of the bad things. And this can be a real challenge and a real problem because our futures can be defined by the bad things from the past. And I want to minimize some of these challenges that people go through because there are bad things that happen to us that does require serious help. And we as a church can help with those things, to point in the direction of of counselors and even doctors and medications at times that can help to to move beyond some of those things or to deal with the pain of those wounds. But at times there's this other category of, of challenging things from our past where we just need to rally together as a family, as a church family, and help each other to break free from those and move forward. But here's the point. Paul's not saying that he hasn't been shaped by these things. What he's saying is that he has found something better. He has found something better of greater value that he wants to choose to define his future by. And he says this in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained all of this or that I've already arrived at my goal, if he'd already attained it or already arrived at his goal, it would be the things from the past that he had experienced. But he hasn't arrived or attained anything yet because he hasn't fully experienced it yet. What does he do? He presses on to the future. He doesn't look in the rearview mirror. He looks out the windshield, pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of him. You see, Paul's goal for the future, what he is pursuing is defined and finds its direction in Jesus Christ. He has seen the good. He has seen the bad, and he is choosing the godly. Now, this is not just a message for the young bucks out there and for the spring chickens among us. This is a message for everybody who still has breath in their bodies because each day we wake up, we have the opportunity to make a choice, a choice to decide what is my direction, what is my identity, what are the goals I'm going to be pursuing. And if our goal is Jesus Christ, there will be good. And there will be good in incredible abundance. And I can tell you this, there will be bad as well, but you will not go through the bad alone because Christ will be with you closer than a brother. He will walk with you through those times and what you will come to experience is the godly because we will be in the midst of his plan and his will and his glory to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So, How do we make this a reality? Well, the nation of Israel had entered into the promised land. They had affirmed their their commitment to God through circumcision and celebrating the Passover. We can do the same. Now relax. We haven't set up a clinic. <laughs> I don't mean literally, <laughs> I mean symbolically. Here's what I mean by that. See, circumcision was this outward physical sign that pointed to an inward spiritual reality. Because the core issue was the heart. The core issue was the heart. A heart that had let go of its own desires, its own fears. A heart that let go of the good, the bad, and was pursuing the godly. In Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about this, where he explains that a person is not truly aligned with God simply by an outward sign that takes place. No more than I become a member of the Oilers because I go buy a jersey and sit in the stands. I become a member of the Oilers when the owner gives me a jersey, when the owner hands it to me, and then I get on the ice and play the game. That's when I become a member of the team. Similarly, when you declare your desire to be on God's team, the Holy Spirit comes in, dwells within you, makes you a part of the family of God, and then we respond to the power of God that is at work in our hearts. But there's an outward physical sign that goes along with this as well. You see, once we're in that family of God, the outward physical sign that is the evidence, the the visible part of that relationship is baptism. When we go public with our faith. Baptism is considered the New Testament equivalent to circumcision. This this outward evidence, this outward sign of a relationship that exists between us and God. This commitment between us and God. Where we proclaim to the world that we are on God's team. Now and forevermore. Now baptism does not make you a Christian. But the Bible is very clear that every Christian is expected to be baptized. Because that when we enter into the waters of baptism, we are symbolically identifying ourselves with the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The means by which we find our deliverance. The means by which we cease to be slaves to sin. Where we find freedom from the shame and the guilt and the judgment that comes from that. As we walk forward in those things. And just as Israel remembered the deliverance that they could experience because of God's reality in their lives, it allowed them to celebrate the Passover, we who know Jesus' deliverance, we who have experienced, have become followers of his, and especially if we have become followers of his and proclaim that through the waters of baptism, we have the opportunity to come forward and celebrate communion, which is like a New Testament version of the Passover, where we remember the means of our deliverance. And that's what this table is all about. That's what it's about. This table we're going to move towards symbolically represents the price that Jesus paid for our sins. You see, all of us have fallen short of God. We all share that in common. And when I say fallen short, I mean we've fallen short of God's perfect will, of his perfect character, and those are things that have separated us from God. Now, falling short, we also refer to as sin, those things where we we don't measure up to what God has planned for our lives and wants for us. We most often see it in the bad parts of our lives. If you look back upon your narrative, the things that you would label bad, we could also look at it as sinful things more often than not. But it can also show up in the good. We can also find good within, the sin within the good things too. Because sometimes the good things of this world are the things that we pursue that were contrary to God's will. Sometimes it was the things that we put our faith in of the world instead of putting our faith in of God. And that would, that would be sinful as well. But Jesus Christ, God's perfect son, paid the price for our sins. See, he took the punishment that was supposed to be ours because of that waywardness. He took that punishment upon himself. And as he took that, he gave to us his righteousness. He gave to us that right standing with God that he had as we made this exchange with him. That's our deliverance. That's our freedom that we can experience. It's got nothing to do with what we earned or or what we deserve. It's purely based upon God's love and upon His abounding grace. And we can receive that by proclaiming our belief in Him. Now, if you're here today and you've never made that profession of faith, and there's something just inside you saying, You can be free of that bondage to sin, of of the shame, of the guilt that goes with it. You have the opportunity, even now in this moment, as we are going to so clearly celebrate the means of that freedom, of Christ's body, which was hung upon a cross, and as Christ hung between heaven and earth, and allowed his body to be brutalized, we remember the bread, and his blood that poured out the life-giving nature of blood, that he gave his blood, he gave his life that it would cover us, that we could have the eternal exchange of having life. By professing professing faith in Jesus Christ, that we thank you, Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for that sacrifice. I need it. I want it. I claim it. Scripture tells us that we say those words and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And in that moment, we enter into the family of God. And our hearts start to change. Change. There's that circumcision of the heart that takes place. And then we continue to follow him. You can make that confession, that decision right now, even where you sit. Or perhaps you're here and, and, and there, you're going through a season of waywardness. You know that you have been going a direction contrary to God's will. He died for that too. And this is an opportunity to hit that reset button. To say, Jesus, I I wandered. And I need to make my way back. Take the time right now as the servers come forward to join me here. To reflect upon those things, where you're at in your life, in your heart. Between the good, the bad, In a moment we claim the godly.